morning. Uh, our reading for this morning that I chose for this first Sunday of the new year, it's not a parable, is Romans chapter 8. I suspect a very familiar reading to uh, most of us. In fact, I, was, I didn't count actually, but I, I think of the just over 200 funerals I did at Gateway Church over my time there. I probably used Romans 8 in well, at least 25% of the time, because that's what people ask for. But anyway, we're going to, uh, I'm going to read to you from Romans 8, verses 28 to uh, the end, though our focus will be on uh, those first couple of verses. So we read this as follows, and we know that in all things God, for the good, let's try that again. And try again. All right. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or chip or persecution or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, congregation, if you are like me, and you took, then you took some time to reflect uh, this past week on the year past, you could not help but be struck again by the fact that hardly any year, 2022 being no exception, ever turns out exactly as you thought or hoped or expected. I could tell personal stories about that, and so I'm sure could you. But today is not a day for looking back, is it? Looking back, after all, can be dangerous. Maybe you've heard about the Sunday school teacher who told her class how Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back. When one of her students interrupted and said, my mom looked back last week while she was driving and turned into a telephone pole. 
It's not that we should not learn from the past. Otherwise, as the saying goes, we are doomed to repeat it. But Jesus did not advise looking back either, at least not as a rule by which to live your life. You may remember what he once told his disciples. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Don't look back, in other words, because you're not going that way. At least not if you are a follower of Jesus. So today, we look ahead to a new year, a time in which we often take inventory of our lives and then make resolutions about what we would like to change. Most of these are about self-improvement, of course. We are determined to eat better, to exercise regularly, to work less, and to play more. You all know the kind of thing I mean. And you also know that most of those resolutions end up being little more than our to-do list for the first week of January. This morning, however, I want to share with you God's resolution for the coming year. It is a commitment. It is a promise God makes in today's text. A promise, says our text, that is for all those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is, if you love the Lord, whoever you are, this promise is for you. And here's the promise. That in all things, God works and will work for your good. To Christians in Rome suffering persecution at the time because of their faith in Jesus, God, through his servant Paul, gave this promise, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I suspect it comes as no surprise when I say that for some people, this is one of the most well-loved verses in the Bible. You were sick, and this promise was like medicine to your soul. You lost a loved one, and these words somehow carried you through. You were crushed by depression and anxiety, and this promise gave you hope to go on. But I suspect it also comes as no surprise when I say that for some people, this is one of the most irritating verses in the Bible. People who hear this verse not as solace for the soul, but as a mocking, cruel joke. When well-meaning Christians quote this verse to those who are suffering, to those who struggle with one or other disease, to, to those who bear with one or other hardship or tragedy in life, to those who stand at the graveside of somebody deeply loved and gone far too soon, a spouse, a child, when well-meaning Christians quote this verse as if it were the answer to every painful question of life, then this verse can be irritating, even infuriating, offering no real comfort whatsoever. So to be encouraged by this promise, rather than irritated, it is so important to know 
what it says and what it doesn't say. There are at least three things. Some people, maybe you too, think it says that it does not say. It does not say that only good things will happen to those who love the Lord. Well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? When you read a little further, especially in Romans 8, Paul talks about the kind of stuff that Christians in Rome were experiencing. And that list included trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and death. Good health, a decent home, a loving family, a rewarding job, relationships that never fail, financial stability, or however else we typically define good, have never been part of the bargain, even for those who love the Lord in a broken, sinful world. What this verse also does not say is that bad things can somehow be seen as good. That God can turn tragedies into blessings. That may be fine for fairy tales, but not for real life. God is present in and through everything that ever happens to us, but he does not ask us, and this verse does not tell us, to pretend that tragedy is not tragedy, that pain is not real, that suffering and evil and death are somehow good. The first of all our hearts to break when we suffer from evil and sin and loss is the heart of God. One other thing this verse does not say is that God can make something good come out of a bad situation. I hear you thinking, it's true, he can. Yes, he can. You know, you just think that Old Testament story about Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt and falsely accused in prison for a crime he did not commit. And in the end, God used Joseph to feed a starving world, most of us if not all of us, could probably think of a time that something good came out of a bad situation, even in our own lives. But we can all also think of painful situations in our own lives where anything good was awfully hard to find, can't we? Yes, God can make something good out of bad situations. And often he does. But, that is not what this verse, this promise here, is about. To understand God's promise here to us on the threshold of a new year, the key word is good. God works for the good of those who love him. But what does God mean by good? Well, then you need to read the verse that immediately follows this one. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, now listen carefully, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Simply put, what God promises all who love him is this. That he is and will always be at work in your life and in my life, shaping and molding and making us to be like 
Jesus. That means, in other words, that our good and God's good aren't necessarily the same. God is not committed to making us healthy, wealthy, and wise, as some Christians believe and teach and preach. He is committed to making you in the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, like his son. We want happiness. We want fulfillment. We want peace. We want long life. And maybe you get that, and maybe you don't, and maybe you won't. But God's promise and goal in us and through us and by everything that happens to us is to transform us into the image of his son. Does that include the worst that happens to us? Yes. Does that include the things that hurt you deeply? Yes. Does that include the times when we are heartbroken? Yes. Does that include the times when we sin? Yes. Does that include the times when we are tempted to curse God to his face? Yes. He is always at work. He is never frustrated by us. Nothing happens to us outside his control. There are no mistakes. There are no surprises. God can do it even when we can't. God does it even when we don't believe it. In the verses that follow, Paul gives us five verbs that describe how this process of coming to look like Jesus takes place. God foreknew. A more accurate translation is foreloved or loved from the beginning. God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. Sometimes we get hung up on the word predestined. But here there is no mistaking what it means. Paul simply reminds us what the whole purpose of God making us was always all about. Making us, and then in light of our tragic decision to go our own way, remaking us to look like Jesus. That's what good means. You and I get to look more and more like Jesus. There's nothing about having a healthy family or a long and happy life. Jesus didn't have those things. There's nothing about a rewarding job or a wonderful life partner. Jesus did not have those things. There's nothing about a decent home or a loyal set of friends. Jesus didn't end up having those things either. God's promise to you is this. That in all things he works and he will work to conform you to the image of Jesus. If God is doing a poor job of that, even when you are doing everything you can to cooperate, that's when you may get irritated and infuriated with God. And that's okay. Just remember, though, that Jesus was homeless, rejected, betrayed, tortured, executed. So we cannot be surprised if we get a little taste of these things too. In fact, as a careful reading of Jesus' teaching suggests, if you and I never experience such things, we should at least wonder if we really are loving and following Jesus as he calls us to. Now, 
there might come a moment or time in your life when you think that your circumstances are an exception to what God promises here. Someone here today might be thinking that your situation in life is so unique that God's promise never took that into account. You could be sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, 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 I'm not saying all this stuff doesn't apply to everybody else, but it's different for me because, well, just look what I'm going through. And so you could think that you are an exception. That what God promises in verse 28 is irrelevant and superficial compared to what you are really going through today. Not so, says Paul. Impossible. And to prove it, he takes us or talks us through no less than 17 kinds of exceptions we might raise to prove that we are in the kind of difficult place that God never considered when he made this promise. He starts with trouble, hardship, persecution, the sort of predicaments we find ourselves in through our own mistakes, the trouble that comes upon us with circumstances beyond our control. Think COVID-19. Or the misery we face because of the ill will of others. Paul moves on to famine and nakedness. In other words, lack of food, lack of clothing, two of our most basic needs. Then there's danger and there's sword. In other words, threats from difficult circumstances, from violent attack. Next come death and life, which between them cover pretty much every eventuality for anything we could possibly fear. Then there are angels and demons, that is to say, any and all superhuman and heavenly beings, whether good or evil. Then there is the present and the future time, along with height and depth, space, all of which include everything our imagination can comprehend and everything it can't. Then finally there are powers, which seem to be a catch-all term for everything that's come before. And just in case you were still thinking something was left out, Paul finishes off with, Anything else, anything else in all creation. And do you notice all the things Paul lists are things Jesus himself was exposed to? Trouble, hardship, persecution, hunger, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, demons, powers, and all the rest. Paul is giving us a list of everything Jesus went through and saying there is no kind of thing that you and I could go through that Jesus has not already gone through first. And if anything, the list has even more authority because the person who put this promise of God down on paper also went through most of these things himself, didn't he? The Apostle Paul is not just appealing to Jesus, though that would be enough, more than enough. But this is Paul's personal testimony. As he reminded Christians in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me just quote a few verses. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. So... Should we ever be tempted to say, but I'm an exception. My situation is different. Paul replies, well, in that case, I'm an exception too. But he isn't. And he knows it. And by the end of his list of 17, not only might we be exhausted, but we're also stripped of all of our exceptions. Except perhaps... In this long list, there is still one thing missing. And that is the suspicion, the fear in the hearts of many people, and maybe some of you are among them, that the problem of suffering, of disappointment, hardship, sickness, and grief is not about any of these things in themselves. That what it really means is that God has turned away from you. God is angry with you. God has lost patience with you. God is punishing you. God just doesn't like you anymore. Paul knows all about that fear, especially given his own personal past as a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. And he knows it is each honest person's worst fear because of the evil and the sin that is in us and remains in us even as followers of Jesus. And because we know that in the face of the almighty power and the almighty holiness of God, we are simply and completely helpless and defenseless. But Paul, you see, shapes his whole argument in these verses to insist that this fear is finally, wholly, and utterly without any grounds whatsoever. God is not against us. God is not against any of you. God is for us. How could it ever be possible that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Why else would Jesus have gone through hell and high water for us? Jesus' death, as remembered in the sacrament of communion that he gave us, is proof that God is for us. And Jesus' resurrection, as we celebrate next Sunday morning at the table which he left us, is proof that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so this long list of 17 circumstances tells us two things. It tells us first that nothing, nothing we can possibly imagine in heaven or earth can separate us, you, me, from God's love in Christ Jesus. Here's my list, says Paul. Go ahead and bring on yours, but know that there is not anything that can pry us and God apart. Christ Jesus is the glue that will always, for now and forever, hold you. 
and hold all who love God together with him. The second thing Paul's list tells us is that since the point of life is not to have a designer home, a terrific degree, a wonderful job, a wholesome family, a loving spouse, great leisure time, huge friendship circles, and all the rest of what we call the good life, maybe you get that, maybe you don't. Since the point of life is to become like Jesus, then this is the kind of hell and high water you can expect to go through in some way, shape, or form if you are going to end up looking like Jesus. Or to use Paul's language, if you are to be conformed to the image of God's Son. So if you are in some trouble now, or you fear you will be pretty soon, or if you're ever in some trouble in the year ahead, and you feel God has broken some sort of promise or deal that was supposed to make you permanently content, please realize that you are mistaken or confused. There never was any such promise. No matter how many times today's health and wealth preachers try to tell you otherwise, the promise was and is. God's goal, God's promise was and is that you and that I would become more and more like Jesus. If you're ever facing hardship or grief and you think it's because God is against you, no, no, you are mistaken or you are confused. God is for you, always was and ever will be. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Whoever you are, whatever your situation, whatever your hopes or fears for the year to come, for all of you who love him, God's promise to you again today is that God is with you and alongside you at every step and in every moment to conform you to the likeness of his son, to shape you, to make you more and more like Jesus our Savior, who has faced everything you have faced or are facing or will face this coming year. And as you were with God, whose eyes in the words of Psalm 139 saw your unformed body and who wrote in his book all the days ordained for you before one of them came to be, so are you now and you always will be. And really, being with God in hardship, being with God in hardship, God being with us in hardship, even if and when and however that's how life may turn out to be this coming year, that is and always will be better in light of eternity than being apart from God in comfort could ever be. Wishing you a blessed new year in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for that wonderful promise. 
We experience, Lord, the brokenness of life in so many different ways. And we know that life isn't always the way, isn't always the sort of good life that we imagine it to be. But Lord, even, and especially in those times in this year, we pray for a wonderful year, but we pray, Lord, that in those times when things aren't so wonderful, that even then we may know your presence and that even through that and through everything we may experience this year, you will continue to shape us to be like Jesus and so to experience your grace, your presence, your love, your power within us and through us individually and a church in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.